Yeah. All right, can you guys hear me? Hear us? All right. Somebody can. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> All right, so uh, this week, uh, last week we got through a lot of this section, but we didn't quite get to the Tower of Babel. And so it seemed good to me in the Holy Spirit uh, to do as a quote of Acts, if anyone cares about my theological joke, uh, to do uh, chapter 11 this week, uh, which is the Tower of Babel. Um, so I guess the very first thing I kind of want to do with the Tower of Babel conversation is, uh, you got some blood. Um, is what is like off the top of your head when you think about the Tower of Babel, when you think about the way it's been presented to you most likely in the Sunday school, um, like what are some of the thoughts that you have about the Tower of Babel? What was this story either about? What's the significance of it? That it, that it was the people's attempt to get closer to God. Okay. When you say closer to God, kind of uh, physically in His presence. All right. What else? My only yes. reference. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> I think she's an actress. What were you saying, Kelly? Oh, my only read. I haven't actually learned about the Tower of Babel in Sunday school or church at any point in my life. That's fair. But I did Godspell. Fair enough. So, <laughs> so what did you learn from Godspell? Um, oftentimes, <laughs> thank you. Yes, he knows exactly. Oftentimes, when it's presented, that part is cut. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. But, um,. <clears throat> Or maybe the part right before that. So in the musical, the part right before that has all these famous philosophers all spouting out their main, like, what they believe distilled in one quote okay. before that starts. So my my takeaway was always that um, everybody had these beliefs that didn't have anything to do with God. And I... I, don't, I didn't even understand how the Tower of Babel really worked into it, frankly, but then it was broken, and now nobody gets to talk anymore. Okay. All right. That's my big understanding. That's... Anybody else? I don't think I remember part of the story. I remember a visual. Like, I remember this picture of this tower that was almost, like, medieval-looking. This giant phallic symbol? Yes. Made out of stone. And just like very round and like this winding staircase that went on. <clears throat> so that that imagery is probably very close to like a ziggurat, which would have been an ancient building. Okay. My painting dried up. I know I didn't get a chance to get them up this morning. I apologize. But you have to work on some new ones for next week. Anybody else? I don't really remember it being covered much. I have a vague recollection of 
comments of that story being used to you know, it's sort of interesting because you mentioned the visual way. Also, I thought of you know Escher and some of his. Oh, like MC Escher. Yeah, his, his, when, I, when I thought of it. All right, uh, Ashley, can you hear me? And we're get a lot of like. Thanks. If you have anything to say, just obviously unmute your mic, or wave at me or something. But uh, does anyone online? So the question, actually, I don't think you heard it. The question I asked was: Does anybody have any presuppositions or any concepts about what the story of the Tower of Babel? Uh, like, what have you heard or learned about the Tower of Babel? Um, so, if nobody else has anything else, we can kind of jump in. I just want to present it uh, with some um, a multiplicity of, of portions of the view. Um, but I'm going to kind of teach it uh, a little bit from the perspective of where, for me, it's kind of resonated the most. And you're going to be able to find other interpretations and other um, other ways of thinking about, obviously. I mean, that's why we have so many commentaries. That's why there's so much uh, resources that you can engage. But this one, for me, kind of speaks mostly, speaks the most to me. And I'm going to say this up front, that this perspective is going to feel political because of our current political uh, emotion climate. Thank you. Um, but I think it, the good thing about it being political is that I think it is going to be a critique of all politics, right? It's not going to be. So what I would ask is, since we are a representation of a multiplicity of political views, that we don't let this descend into a competing worldview of our modern politics. And instead we leave it as, uh, I think you guys will kind of see where we're going. And I would ask that we just try to leave it there. Is that fair? We all go with that? All right. So the first thing we need to do, I think, if we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel, we need to ask who's responsible for building the tower. Does anybody have any thoughts about who's responsible? If you're here Wednesday, you might have a little bit more of a sense of this, but if you weren't, uh, what, what do you imagine, who do you imagine is accountable or responsible for building the Tower of Babel? <laughs> People. Okay, what specific person? All right, so let's look at Genesis 10, verse 10. Actually, let's begin with verse 9. So Genesis 10, 9. Actually, I'm going to read 10, 9, and 10, uh, actually through, let's just say, uh, we'll do 10, 9 through 11, but then I'm also going to jump over and read the first nine verses of Genesis 11 so we can hear uh, the story of the Tower of Babel. So, uh, 
<clears throat> so it says in 10.9, it says, uh, he was a mighty hunter. I'm sorry, let's first say, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kelne, Kelne in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, and that is the great city. So, uh, sure, if you don't mind doing are you doing over there? Thank you. Um, so Nimrod is the person that's responsible. Most ancient thinkers believe because it said it was the beginning of his kingdom. The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. And so they say Nimrod, therefore, if it's his kingdom. Uh, and the other thing we need to be kind of surprised by here is what? This is the first time we hear of someone being what? A hunter? What else? Warrior. Warrior? What else? Ruler? A king. Right? So these are the first times we're hearing these descriptions of someone. And we learned throughout scripture that God does not want a king, a human king, over his people. Yet here's Nimrod, who is at the beginning of his kingdom, and he builds this Tower of Babel. Nimrod means, or can mean, rebel. Okay, so all of this is kind of building into the imagination of the interpreters as to who uh, Nimrod is and what kind of character Nimrod has. So let's first begin with the fact that Nineveh is another city that he finds, right? And uh, one of the passages or one of the topics we talked about here a few, probably a month ago now, was the Jonah story and how Nineveh represented the epitome of wickedness in all the earth at that time. And so Nineveh is part of Nimrod's story. Nimrod is a hunter, and we know according to Leviticus 17, what about hunting? I'll take a guess. It is not a, a favored way to kill an animal in God's eyes. Okay, that would be the interpretation of Leviticus 17. But what does Leviticus 17 say? Anybody have any thoughts? Yes. It says, if any one of the house of Israel, this is verse 3, if any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. So there is room that there was hunting, but later that passage began to be seen that the only way to truly make sure that any uh, animal that was slaughtered was first to bring it to the temple and then to even have someone at the temple slaughter the animal in order to avoid any possibility of blood guilt. Right. So if you think about it, a lot of Israel's laws, rules, and concepts of life were uh, there'd be a law, and then they would try to make the law more strict in order to make certain that they didn't offend God. And before we think, oh, that's so Jewish, and thank goodness we don't have to do that, Jesus does it. He says, you've been told not to murder. I'm going to make sure that there's not even a chance that you could murder, and let's eliminate hatred. Right? You've been told not to commit adultery. I'm going to make sure that we don't even get to that place, so don't even have lustful views. 
right? So this is all part of just very much deep Jewish tradition that you took a teaching or a law or a rule in the text and you made it more difficult in order to uh, watch, make sure that we don't in any way offend God. So hunting was considered to be, later, is considered to be an offense to God. And so what, what are some of the reasons why that would be an offense to God? Probably because he created, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Probably because he created the animals. Okay. And you're killing something, a piece of his creation. Okay. I would say that that's a piece of it, but I think it goes bigger than that. Because God allows us, after the flood, he says he gives us animals to eat, right? Mm -hmm. So, but what is the part about it that makes it so uh, complicated, in Israel's mind at least? Aren't there, um, later Leviticus, Leviticus goes over how to slaughter an animal, what is the most humane and respectful way to slaughter an animal, so that even though you are slaughtering the animal, which is taking its life, there is a respect for it, and hunting would, in my mind, go against that, because you're, you're just trying to make one fast kill, no matter how it's done. So that's close. So within the Jewish tradition, is, we just got done with the section, right? Where God makes a covenant with every living creature, not just with humanity, but with every living creature. And so God's promise is uh, life and fullness of life and such. And so Israel took that and established a sacrificial system that did its best to guarantee that when the animal was slaughtered, it did not suffer. Uh, and I believe it might still be basically true, but until it's been at least until recent history that the kosher slaughtering of animals was still the most humane way to kill an animal, right? I'm sure we have found other ways to do it using uh, science and technology, um, but uh, until at least recent history, the kosher, the kosher slaughtering laws uh, actually remain very humane. So the problem was, if you were a hunter, you could not guarantee that your shot, uh, and oftentimes they use dogs to hunt, so when they're thinking about hunting, they're not necessarily thinking about rifles and such, but they use a dog to hunt, you could not guarantee, in fact, oftentimes you definitely did not guarantee that it would be a clean and merciful kill of the animal. And the suffering of the animal went counter to God's covenant with the animals, right? Which is why even today within kosher laws and stuff, the way that animals are slaughtered in a lot of our meat industry is considered inhumane to the Jewish sensibility, and so they won't eat that meat. So that's kind of another hint. So we have Nineveh as a hint. We have the fact that he's a hunter. His name can mean rebel. Um, and so there is one verse, though, 10.8, that makes Nimrod's story complicated here if we want to set Nimrod up to be a bad guy. Right? So in verse 10.8 of Genesis, what does it say?
10.8 says, Cush Father Nimrod. I'm sorry, I'm looking, I think it's 10. 10, no, I'm sorry. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And so you have this, this verse where it seems that Nimrod is before the Lord. And ancient interpreters read that and actually said that Nimrod presented himself as if he was representing God, right? That he, uh, as if or uh, in place of. So uh, the way that we would do it today, the way we would imagine this today would be, have you ever had a conversation with someone about faith or about moral issues and they pull the God card on you, right? And they'll be like, well, God told me or I heard God say, or something like that, and they'll pull the God card, at which point you can't argue, right? The conversation is over, kaput, what have you. Because... I always say, well, he didn't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fair, but it does end the conversation. There's no, there's no necessary further debate with that individual, at least. And so they imagine that Nimrod was presenting himself to the people as though he spoke for God. And that he was uh, God's mouthpiece. Okay. And so we have three ways. So that's Nimrod. And if Nimrod is the builder of this, right, um, here's what we have then when we view the Tower of Babel. So I would say we can view the Tower of Babel in three ways. All of them are kind of similar. Uh, you might find some other ways to imagine it. Um, but these are the three major interpretations of the Tower of Babel. One, they imagine that Nimrod told the people that they needed to build a tower of Babel, that they needed to build this tower so high that when God sent the next flood, that they could survive. So what does Nimrod use to get the people to do what Nimrod wants? Popular culture. I'd say fear. fear. Yeah, definitely fear. But also, he neglects in that context to mention the fact that God promised he'd never do that again. Exactly. That's what Ruby just said. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good job, Ruby. He'd never do the blood again. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And Nimrod, <laughs> as, as tradition has it, Nimrod was telling the people, no, no, God will go back on God's word. And we need to build this tower uh, in order to survive. The Is that why one. people say what a Nimrod now? I don't know. I think that Nimrod <laughs> probably does. Do. I think using Nimrod as a derogatory statement probably does come from the story of Nimrod and the traditions associated with him, but I'm not positive. Um, so that's the first way to think of it. The second way to think of the Tower of Babel is that. They, uh, if you notice in this passage, it keeps... Oh, we didn't read it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you notice in the passage that we didn't read. All right, so let's read the Tower of Babel section. It's, verses, it's chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, before they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there, over the face of all the earth, and they left all off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So used in this passage, oftentimes, and we don't necessarily see it depending on what English translation you have, is the, this word there, P-H-E-R-E, referencing, the way we hear that is referencing a place. But that word in the Hebrew the vowels in the Hebrew, because I don't know if you guys know this, there are no vowels in the Hebrew. So it's just consonant. So many of the words that we hear, or the words that are translated, are kind of play off of other words because there's no consonants. So if you could imagine sitting down to read a book that had all the consonants removed, and even some of the spacing switched up or gone, it would be hard to read, which is why people are so impressed with Jesus when Jesus gets up and reads from the scroll, right? Because that was really hard. Uh, you had to be learned. You had to be uh, very familiar with the text to get up and read from the passage. And so this word that, that we translate as there was also the word used for idol. And so they imagine that, uh, the ancient translators imagine that this could be saying that they were removed from the idol. They were taken away from the idol, right? God says, and they were removed from there. Right? And so that this, this tower was being built to have idol worship. Yes, you have a question? This is sounding more like an altar. Yes. Um, because, and it's an altar to man, by man. They're making the brick. They're not using stone like they used to. Right. And they're just building this up for themselves. Yep. But that's the first time I saw it as an altar. It very well may be. And we'll see it again when we get to Exodus and we see them build a golden path, which is going to have very similar feelings to this passage if we read it that way. The third way to read this, so I realize I'm kind of jumping through three things pretty fast here, but the third way to read this is that this was actually a tower meant to seize heaven. That they were building their way up to heaven to breach heaven and overthrow God. Um, this is presented this way because we have in Genesis 1 through 3, we have the people want the Adam and Eve in the story become more like God, and this becomes their their offense to God is that they try to steal the role of judge, or they do steal the role of judge from God. And then we see the people right before the flood that they become they live as though they're in charge, they live as though they're in control, uh, and they they ignore God. And now you have this group of people who seemingly are getting ready to storm heaven and overthrow God, right? Now, real quickly on that point is some great Jewish humor is that same section then says, so God went down to see what they were doing because from where God was way up in heaven, he couldn't make out the tower. 
from there. <laughs> and so they were building this great tower, but God, you know, his vision's a little bad. Uh, and so God had to go down to even see what this tower was. Now, I, I just want to add one or two quick things to these three perspectives, and then we'll kind of open up the floor for some questions if there are any. So the first one is with the survival of flood thing. This is important because the narrative gets flipped here in the sense that, and I would say no matter how you read this, this passage flips the narrative. In the garden, God's promise to Israel, or promise to the people, was that you would be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And that, that was a blessing. And now the rhetoric in uh, Babel is that we better do something or God will scatter us. And now all of a sudden the language has shifted, it's flipped. What was once a blessing that God said, I will bless you basically and multiply you, make fruitful, you'll fill the entire earth. And that was a promise and a blessing. Now it's all of a sudden been twisted that God will show anger towards us and punish us by scattering us. And so I think that that's a really important piece for us to see. Uh, in chapter 10, verse 32, it talks about uh, the people moving throughout the earth, and it's not a negative connotation. And that same word that's used there for fill the earth is the same one that's used for scattered here. So that word doesn't necessarily denote a negative thing, but it's used negatively here. So they're imagining that the punishment uh, that God will give them is to scatter them, right? And this shouldn't be viewed as a punishment. It should be viewed as a blessing. Um, all right. Uh, and then make a name for ourselves is another piece to this whole thing where it's imagined that uh, names were, were sacred. Uh, names were, so remember, like throughout the tour, we're going to see as God kind of calmly and quietly in very unique settings shares God's name, Yahweh. And that, that's a significant moment. And so here is the people, an altar to themselves, uh, a monument to themselves. They are going to make a name for themselves. Uh, and so this, again, is showing that all of this is happening as a way of countering God. All right, so any questions about those three ways um, to read the text before we go into uh, how this is important for us to think about it this way? I have a couple of questions. I'm saying this, but it's, it seems that there is a, a thread between all three of those that says something. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, all of it is the arrogance of man in some way, whether it's replacing God, fighting God, or uh, or uh, using God as a threat. Yeah. Blacksburg, do you have something? Um, yeah, so up to this point, how many times have people actually been dispersed? How many times have people what? Been dispersed or sent away or sent out? Uh, they... At no point up until now has anyone been forcibly dispersed. So, like, now it's just been given, they have the freedom to disperse, uh, and it's viewed as a positive, 
uh, whereas uh, now this will be the first time we see it deliberately happen. We might see it, I, I think you make arguments, you see it later in scripture with exile language, that God exiles people and that they're forced to be dispersed. Uh, but other than that, this is the first place. And about the tower itself, uh, did the people building it think they could actually reach the heavens? And what was their concept of the heavens at that time? Yeah, so if you think about almost all ancient God stories uh, and God being, whether it's mythology, um, Greek mythology, uh, or what have you, you always had these mountains that were, that the tops were in the heavens uh, or in the clouds. And the idea was that that was where heaven kind of kissed um, and that where that's where the gods and man could interact with each other. See so a Mount Olympus, like right? Yeah, there's imagery of like these tall. We we have Mount Sinai for Israel story, um, and so I think what we could make an argument for here is that with Mount with mountains, they're God's creation that connects the people to God. And here, I think a powerful story being told is they're dictating the terms now of how to meet God or where to meet God, is they're building their own tower. Does that make sense? Yeah, how does that tie into Genesis 1 with um, separating and calling it heaven? Um, I don't know. Uh, I, think, I think here, again, I think the perspective wasn't so much, I think, I think the idea of like heaven in the way that we talk about heaven uh, is, is different. Um, you know, we talk about heaven as a spiritual realm someplace where for ancient people, they imagined quite literally the sky uh, in some way within the clouds, within outside of the view of the people, that that was where heaven was. Uh, so I, I think that what we're seeing is uh, that I, I would argue that in Genesis 1, it just seems to be talking about the sky. Um, but you might find something that's, that's completely the opposite of that view. I don't know. I think it's interesting how they thought that the sky was an actual solid. It wasn't a gas. And how they, like, we perceive that this is the ground, but they perceived that the sky was similar to the ground. It was solid, but in the air, they called it the firmament. So it was actually a solid substance. So I'm thinking that their thought was, and this is just a supposition, but that they could somehow build something high enough to get to that floor and then be in the heavens. And, and I think this is where the, the metaphorical versus the historical comes into play, because I think that if we read this as parabolic or metaphorical, then it really doesn't matter what the individual actually thought uh, about where heaven began and earth ended or what have you. It more so was the idea that people under the leadership and kingship of Nimrod started to imagine that they could overthrow God, right? And that this was their perspective. And that the way that you get to that point is he first, Nimrod first had to be viewed as in partnership with God, 
just like, and this is where I think we can see some political things, right? Every candidate that we have in in uh, Western American culture when they come and run for the presidency has to declare, sure or not, that they're a Christian in order to identify themselves as being connected in some way with God, so then therefore the people will buy into them. Mm. Uh, and that's the same thing with Linda. And that happens across all political uh, parties. There's this incessant need for the party or the member of the party to identify in our situation as Christian uh, in order to get the people to follow them. And then we will oftentimes follow that person blindly because, well, they're aligned with God and God appoints the leaders and we use all this language and this rhetoric. The thing that I think is really interesting with the Nimrod story in the Tower of Babel is what the people almost immediately begin doing what? What's the first thing that people do in this story? Argue or Start making bricks. Oh yeah, yeah. Like that's the first thing that people start doing is they start making bricks. What do you imagine in Israel's mind is the story of brick making? Slavery. It's completely slavery. And the very first thing they do as they start to listen to Nimrod. And I realize I'm imposing Nimrod here, but I think there's a pretty solid case in the text where it says this is the beginning of his kingdom. But we start following some voice, and so for, for brevity, I'm just going to say Nimrod, and someday when Nimrod and I sit down and chat, we can decide if that was wrong. But, um, but here's, they're listening to Nimrod, and the very first thing they start to do is they start to build bricks. And they're excited about it. And not only are they excited about it, but now they bought into the idea that if they don't do it, that they'll be punished. And that so it uses fear to convince people to do the exact plan that the leader wants them to do. And this is a dangerous thing. This is, I think we're seeing our very first critique in the Bible of empire. That the moment that empire starts rising up, the moment that we start to uh, give so much power and strength to an entity, whether that be a government or that be an individual or what have you, that there's a really good chance that all the people will buy in and start behaving in a manner that they don't even realize that they're living an oppressed life. And they will actually imagine that what they're doing is better than the consequences if they don't do it. And this is a really dangerous, dangerous thing. Um, any thoughts about that? Yes. Um, try to connect the dots here. I'll get you a second, Blacksburg. Okay. Um, oh. I want to elaborate on the concept of God specs and man specs. It seems like um, here we had God specs in, in previous and built a an ark that salvaged certain lives of animals and people, and it was it was 
proven to be uh, seaworthy and it, and it, and it can't find worse than it. And it worked. Why would they try something that hasn't worked? Why would, if they were going to survive the flood, why would they build an ark? Interesting. So I don't know if you guys heard online or not, but Chris's question was, if they were building this uh, this tower to survive an impending second flood, why wouldn't they just build an ark uh, instead? Since they are, that's a proven concept. Um, <laughs> In ten words or less, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, my mind begins to race, and I just imagine. Well, uh, I would imagine that the only people that actually would get to be at the top of that temple were, would be the powerful people in the community. How many could they even have? Them? Yeah. Right. I, that's the thing. So, well, so the same, again, that's the same thought with the Ark, though. How many could you actually have in it? Right. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly. And so, I don't know. Right. I think it's a really interesting question that um, I don't really have a... Well, that makes me think that if, if the... Don, you brought up the three different possibilities for why they were building the tower. So it's interesting to think that the leaders might have been saying this is why we're building the tower, but that but that's not, that wasn't even the truth. So you know what I mean? So that the leaders were being deceptive. I mean it's just the thought that like, well, hey, we're gonna build this tower because then we could all survive the flood. <laughs> we're gonna trick them into building a tower, but that's monument because it's amazing and we wanna be remembered. There you go. I, yeah, I mean I So that right. would mean it's two out of the three, you know. And, and I still think that that fits to the way we do empire. Yeah. And we do power. And it doesn't have to be empire so big as like talking about governments. It can also be the way that we rule other things. Like that we, we manipulate the situation in order to uh, maintain power and control. Blacksburg, you had a question. Yeah, so when the Lord comes down and disperses them and even changes their language, is that any kind of commentary or um, attempt to counter the slavery image? Yeah, so the whole thing, this is a great question, Tony, thanks for leading me into a segue. Do you have a follow-up question to that? Okay. Um, is the What's so important about this story is language, right? Like this is the important part of the story because language controls power, right? And God speaks the world into creation. God uses language that gives life, right? Uh, Abraham Heschel's famous saying, words create worlds. What kind of world will you create, right, with the way you speak? And so here's this idea, this picture of the language of God gives life. It's creative. It's beautiful. It, it causes uh, filling the earth. It causes being fruitful and multiplying. All of these things are rich. But then when man takes language and, and takes it and locks it down, it becomes oppressive, right? And uh, we can find that, right? So uh, there was someone who said something about Hitler. Before Hitler had an army, he had words, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's a super charismatic leader, and the words are what got him his army. Uh, and so this idea, you know, the Proverbs talk about our words, you know, our tongue is a, is a sword, uh, and 
all of this stuff. So in the imagination of ancient Israel, and I would say still to our day, we imagine words to be so powerful and they can either give life and encourage freedom and liberation, right? If we use our words well, we can liberate people. If we use our words uh, violently, we can oppress people. Um, I think this is a critique not only of empire, but it's also a critique of religion. Um, so when I think about this, so say it was an idol, we can make this about religion, we are building an idol. And with when we start using words to, to fix constraints, like when, I sit, when a church sits down and says, you have to believe these exact things verbatim or you're out that's buying into this power of words and this power over people and fear of the repercussions if you don't listen to those things right i don't know about you guys but some of my experience growing up in a really traditional conservative church was the threat of the outside world as punishment, if, if I wasn't careful with the way I lived, with what I believe, I would end up on the outside. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the scattering threat here, right? Like, like, oh, if you're not careful, we're gonna, if we're not careful, we're going to get scattered. And everyone using that as language of, for fear and for holding people in one place. So let me tell you something. My experience with the church was when I went outside the church, I experienced life. I experienced richness. I experienced beauty. I experienced all kinds of things that I was told. There's a uh, movie made by the guy named The Sixth Sense called, like, was it like Village? The Village? Yes. Which was, I think, something similar, right? Like, they had this thing that was surrounded by woods, and they, they told the children horrible, scary stories so the kids would never leave. Uh, and then when they actually left, they found out one that their monsters weren't real. I never saw the movie, so I'm making this up. Right now. <laughs> uh, good you should definitely go into depth. Then. I should, I should definitely <laughs> give us all the details. So, would you say to segue from Toby's comment, is dispersion always an act of grace? It is here. God actually liberates the people. He like frees them from the brick making. So when God scatters the people and confuses their language, so the, the interesting thing is with the Hebrew, it says, for then there will be nothing impossible for them. And that word impossible is the same word as like fortified. And God's saying, if they continue to live this way, they will become so fortified against me. Right? Uh, now I'm trusting an ancient sage for that interpretation. I can't speak to the validity of that, but his words were preserved and mine won't be. Uh, so, uh, so there's this picture of that if, if they were left to their own devices to continue doing this, that they would just become so fortified and so locked down that they would never ever experience liberation and freedom. All right. Any thoughts about all that? Yeah, Tom. Um, so in chapter 10, there's multiple times that it talks about the descendants and the going out and having different languages. Is it chronologically different? Is the word language different? Or is there a difference between organic language and yeah, this language? So I think you're touching on like 70 things here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> See what I did there? 70 languages. <laughs> Another theological joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> you guys will get it in. But then you told us, so now we can all yeah. laugh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what you're hitting on is a few different things. One, we need to remember that for the Hebrew people, this wasn't a history story. Uh, and so they weren't worried about chronology. Chronology is out the window with Israel, which is why like, the Gospels seem to contradict themselves. And stuff. They just weren't worried about chronology. Um, so that's one piece to your question. But then they, the rabbis point to uh, verse 1 of chapter 11 for a second part of your question, where it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And they're like, wait a second. What's the difference? Yeah. One's language and one's same words. And they, they decide that uh, what's going on here is that uh, one way of thinking. Right, that they only thought one way. Uh, again, I think this is a great piece for our current you know, po uh, po political uh, climate. In the fact that all of us are given uh, interesting articles and everything that we're on, and they all agree with us, right? And so we have this: we're only ever hearing one language, or maybe one word all the time, and so we're never actually being stretched to think outside of our own worldview. And uh, and so that's what the rabbi said was dangerous, was that they were only had one way of thinking. Nobody was questioning. Nobody was critiquing. No one was pushing against the norm. And so uh, so I don't think necessarily, Tom, that in, in the chapter 10 section, that it's, it's different, I'd say it's probably language speaking about, you know, dialect. Mm -hmm. But you did touch on what they hit on in chapter 11, verse 1, which is very much like one word would mean, would imply one way of thinking, and uh, and one language would talk about actual language. So in the end 11, are they, uh, I don't know what the Hebrew words that are, we're translating language. Would we better probably translate into word in that context? I I did not see anyone okay. make that attempt, and that is above my pay grade to do right. it on my own to come to that. Um, but I think it's a great question because well, what, why don't we ask some questions about that? So, what would be the implications if they were talking about one word versus language? I mean, I think it's. The changing of language just seems more like arbitrary. Yeah, because now we just need a translator and we can just figure it out and we're done. Like, yeah, it's Google not really. Translator and it's done. it's just slowing down a process versus right muddling up a process. Right. Yeah, I'm with you. I think for me, I want to I want to gravitate towards the one word portion of that idea that it, it gave different worldviews. Maybe quite literally, these are different parts of the world. Um, and so I think in this, you know, this if we're reading this as this, this metaphor, this parabolic story of uh, God is actually encouraging diversity, right? that, that humankind imagined that it was better for us all to agree on everything, and God imagined it was better for the world to have diverse views. Um, that's powerful to me, right? That's really, really a powerful picture. Yes. So, with that, could you even argue that God is changing culture? So, like, with the language, there comes a culture shift, an emotion shift. 
and possibly uh, like one word for one cult culture won't be an emotion, the same emotional trigger for another culture. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that's just we can do like we can get more anthropological in this and have a discussion about how humanity functions with a different language and how that affects relationships. But um, I. I personally can't speak to that, but I think that they're that can definitely be viewed in this. So with like the language shift, um, I don't know if we talked about it. So we talked about it being like one word versus language. If it is like a complete language change, how does how do these people connect to Israel, like in relation to? Um, Hebrew and the Jewish people are they kind of off on their own? Do they leave? Well, again, this goes back to whether you read this as historical or metaphorical. If you read this as history, then we're left with that conundrum to figure that out. Or reading this as metaphor, the metaphor is not addressing that issue. Okay. Like it's just not being addressed. So it's kind of like when Jesus teaches a parable, uh, and we go, "Well, what did the Samaritan do after he left the hotel?" Well, the parable doesn't care what the Samaritan did that night. He went to the casino or whatever he did. No one cares, right? Um, and so, so if it's history, it might be important for us to know that. It might be important for us to imagine where the Samaritan went after dropping this person off at the hotel. Um, but uh, so for me, when I read the Tower of Babel, I tend to gravitate towards it being parabolic and metaphorical. Uh, and so for me, that question, I don't think the Bible addresses it. I think that you could make some cases that the Bible might address it on Mount Sinai where it says, and the great thunder, and everyone imagined that that thunder was God speaking in all 70 languages simultaneously. Right? And so God even gives Torah on Mount Sinai in every language. And then you can make the case that in Acts 2, when is when the uh, the apostles start teaching, and here they're only hearing in their own language, right? They're not speaking in every language, which is what we often want. But the text actually says that they began to hear it in their own language, um, and so there is this again. God is is transcending language. God transcends all of that, and is actually addressing all people when God addresses the world. So, are you? Saying the speaking in tongues is that is that just hearing in tongues or I I'm not trying to make any proclamation about that I'm just saying in Acts chapter two it says that the people began to hear the apostles in their own language right I I, I can't help but draw that there's so many connections between what happened at Babel and you know here they are building this this structure that goes up 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 and here we're talking about the upper room and then we're talking about God coming down and bundling um, up the language or freeing them, mm -hmm. and God coming down again, and somehow giving them the ability to have other people hear his one language. Or I'd say, I would, I would argue it's his priority, God first, you say. Yeah. And then the other part of that that I was contemplating is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right. And so I'm thinking, so where's this word that they're talking about, and is that word Christ that's now coming back to live among us? I, I, it's just, 
all the the similarities of of the language. Yeah. I, so for me, the way I try to read the text is. I try to be careful of reading something in the Hebrew text as being about Jesus. I try to be careful with that mm -hmm. because then that basically tells Judaism that you have nothing. You're worthless now. <laughs> what I would argue, however, that I don't think loses anything is that when the authors tell the story about Jesus, they want us to hear the Torah stories in the life of Jesus. Not that the Torah stories pointed to Jesus, but that Jesus's life points to the Torah. Mm -hmm. um, and because John says he is the word in flesh, right? But, uh, and so that Jesus's life points, the story of Jesus's life is constantly pointing us back. That's what God does all throughout the scriptures. Remember, remember Jesus at the Last Supper. Remember, right? That all this is about remembering, so it's going backwards, not about going forward. So. Uh, so for, that's okay if that's how you, you view it, but you're, you'll hear my language pretty consistently that the gospel writers wanted us to hear the story of Babel, the gospel writers wanted us to hear the story of Sinai, not the other. The other so are we being beckoned to go back to the garden? Well, I, I mean, Jesus' life at the very end, he says, today I'll be with you in paradise, which is garden So I mean, you know, ultimately, again, the author wants us to hear that in some way the garden's being renewed in this moment. Jesus, yeah. I um, kind of appreciate my music. I can't stop thinking about sort of a musical metaphor when you were talking. This is not about what they were saying. What I was thinking yeah. when you were talking before, but about. Um, Essentially, about God doing us a favor when He scattered us, not um, right. not a punishment. Yeah. And I think, and so I was thinking about, well, music is beautiful because of harmony and counter melody, right? And and heart, uh, music that is linear and only has one melody where everybody's singing the exact same notes is not is not very beautiful. It's boring, right? So we talk about a world where people live in harmony, and you think about, oh, well, before the Tower of Babel, people were living in harmony. No, they weren't. They were living in melody. You can only have harmony when everybody's different, but it goes together. Right. And, and what you're, the point you're making is the difference in the two unities that are spoken about in this passage. Like, God, of course, wants the people of the world to be unified. Right. But he doesn't want them to be singular. Right. Right. And so uh, that it's not about uh, agreeing, it's about being in community. Right. Right. And when we are only about agreeing, that leads to coercion and oppression and, and harmful things. Mm -hmm. When we are actually in community with a diversity of views and ideas, then we experience life and it's healthy. And I would argue, and it's Torah. Right. Um, and but you can't have harmony without everybody being different. Correct. I think that's something interesting to think of. Everybody always thinks, oh, one world living in harmony. That means we all believe the same thing and no. do the same thing. No, it's not that at all. That wouldn't even be harmony. Right. I, I, as speaking of singing, I think of my training in, in singing and how one of the most important parts of singing was for me to listen to the other voices and see where my place fits. And so I think that's a respectfulness that I think speaks to that as well. 
So let me, because we only have a few more minutes, let me just, I want to talk real quick about just some more things with language uh, and power, right? So, um, so one of the things I've read is about language says language not only reports, but it shapes power relations. Um, and I think about the fact that, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever read anything by Ruby Keene, who uh, she wrote some stuff, uh, Bridges Out of Poverty. And she talks about there's frozen language, and there's formal language, and there's casual language, and then there's intimate language. And frozen language would be like uh, the Pledge of Allegiance or the Declaration of Independence. That's frozen language. There's one way to say it, it's frozen. The Lord's Prayer that we have some variances is frozen language, right? Uh, formal language would be the language you use in an interview. Right, uh, and so formal language is if I'm speaking to you on a professional level, I'm going to use a very specific uh, set of words. Casual is probably this more so. This is probably more casual, uh, where we're having conversations, dialogue. We have some vulnerability, uh, but then there's intimacy, which would be words between loved ones, between spouses, between a parent and a child. Um, so that would be intimacy or between best friends or whatever. Or, uh, so that's the language of intimacy. And if you think about it, our power structures demand in, in our culture today a grasp of formal language in order to be successful. But we know based on language studies that people that live in the most impoverished neighborhoods very, have very few, very little access to formal language and primarily only have access to casual or intimate language, which is why oftentimes uh, someone who is impoverished will say something uh, in a setting that people will be like, can't believe you just said that. Right? Uh, and it's also why children will often say things who are like, ah, you misread this room. This is not a room that's intimate right now. This is a room that's casual, but not intimate. Uh, we don't need to tell everyone what she saw mommy doing, right? Uh, <laughs> and to who. <laughs> so uh, so that's, that's kind of this thing. And so language, it's, I'll give you an example. Uh, so I've run businesses throughout my life. And uh, a teenager from the suburbs, a wealthy community, when they filled out a job application versus someone who is in an impoverished community, maybe even an adult, fills out the same application, almost every time the application filled out by someone in poverty will be dismissed very quickly because it's not filled out properly. And the, the, the application from the teenager, which is filled out properly, and I'm, I really mean properly, I want to put quotes around that, um, because there's an expectation of formal language designed by who? Help the people in power, which then keeps the people in power because they're the ones that know the language that needs to be used. And so this is really important for us when we think about how language affects or maintains power structures. So let's think about Jesus. Jesus's language was always liberating people and deconstructing the power structure that uh, the higher-ups in the culture had. Jesus was always confronting 
that and instead speaking liberation. Blessed are the poor. What? Right? That's a flip on its head. Blessed are the poor. Um, complete and total flipping of everything. The first will be last. The last will be first. Flipping of everything. Jesus spoke language that liberated people. And because of that, anyone who did not want their world changed and they did not want power redistributed saw all the language of Jesus as a subversion. That is super important for us when we think about how we how we want to imagine where we speak, how we participate in the world, how we talk about the gospel, how we talk about faith. Um, is that, that if we are speaking in language that brings liberation, right? If we speak and we give our children uh, space, they're going to explore and they're going to discover new things and they're going to feel free to experience things. It's the opposite of the Tower of Babel, which is out of fear, I will self-impose slavery and build these bricks. And uh, I will stay here and not ever explore. In fact, I will see the outside of the world as wicked and evil and fearful and be afraid of it. Right? Um, and so for us, we need to get past that with our language. I want to read real quick from Walter Brueggemann. Uh, so I'm going to read two paragraphs real quick. He says, language is decisive for the shape and quality of human community. More than anything else, language determines the way in which human persons care for each other. Language shapes the ways in which human communities conduct their business and arrange power. Language is the way we bestow upon each other the gifts of life or death. In a positivistic society, language is conventionally understood simply as describing what is. When language only describes what is, it inevitably shrinks. It tends to become ideological, giving permanence to the way things presently are. But language in serious community need not be only descriptive of what is. It can be evocative and creative, calling into being things that do not already exist. Such language is the way of promise and of hope, and because such speech calls into existence things that do not exist, it is dangerous and subversive speech. It stands characteristically over against things as they are. This text, Tower Babel text, invites reflection on the possibility of language and on all the dangers of language misuse. Um, I love that. And I, I don't necessarily, this isn't, I won't look back on this conversation and think I did the best job of explaining this, which is kind of funny since it's about language. Um, but I really hope that one of the things we do take away from this is our language should be liberating. It should be instilling fear. It should be freeing people. Our language should not be uh, manipulative that makes people who imagine themselves to be free but are actually creating bricks. Our language should not, uh, it should always be, by the people in power, our language probably more often than not should be viewed as subversive not as going along with the flow. Um, and we should ask, are we contributing to the current power structures or are we fighting up against them? Um, so I will give a moment for any quick thoughts if anyone has some questions. I, I know that I just dumped a lot right there. Um, 
But does anyone have any thoughts or questions? Is the gospel anything liberating? Is the gospel anything liberating? I'm not sure I understand your question. Uh, it seems I'm just playing with what Jesus was doing in most of his language is liberating people. And then he commissions quote unquote people to spread the gospel. Can there be undesirable liberation? Well, no, I'm not sure if that's understand that. <laughs> um, the gospel, I mean, outside of the concept of resurrection, the gospel has to be presented in a liberating fashion. Yes. Regardless. Regardless. In Christ we have freedom. Right. I and I think and that that's great for me here. I mean that's that should have been taught to me as a little kid. You know, at, it, it, no matter what, you know, lest your brother stumble you know, pick him up. Um, that's all we do. Anybody else have any thoughts or questions or concerns? I think it's really interesting, like, the perspective of language that we've talked about and how I need to do some thinking about how, like, my own language and, like, keeps people where they are in poverty, like, doesn't allow bridges to cross because of the lack of informal language. And so I just, I guess, turning in my head, like, how... How can that be changed, like a recognition and even like an openness to more casual language? I don't think that we, no, no, no. no. I, I think openness to casual language is great. And I just want to say that I don't think that necessarily we need to change all of our language or reduce our formal language to casual language. I, and I'm saying reduce is, is a little bit of a misnomer. I don't mean it as in it's less than. But rather, I think what we need to do is uh, affirm people in their casual language, affirm people in the language that they're using, and celebrate. This goes back to what we said: we just aren't good at celebrating each other. Like we want to, we want to fix everyone's grammar uh, <laughs> <laughs> and change our minds too. Yes, because if we change our minds, then we won't, we won't think of it as reducing. Right. If we change our minds, then we won't feel compelled to change somebody else's grammar. Because when we when, we're, when, we're, when we get caught up in their grammar, we're not hearing what they're even saying. Mm -hmm. So we have to change our own mind to be able to hear. And I am like, I love good grammar. So it makes me think of my friend Nicole, who um, is raising black sons in the United States. And, and uh, gets so angry, even though her children are really intelligent and people are complimenting them, but she gets so upset when people say, um, your, your sons are so well-spoken. She gets upset. That implies that if they didn't speak the way they did, they would be less than. And for her, that implies that her friends, family, other parts of her community are less than because they don't speak that way, A. And B, that it's a surprise that they can speak as though they're college educated because they are, you know. So there's that, yeah, so changing our own minds about what we're listening to, to hear the heart of what somebody's saying, which could be just as thoughtful, just as um, intelligent, without sounding the way we sound. Well, we confuse intelligence with formal education. Right. And they're not the same thing.
I'm so guilty of that sometimes. I forgive you. <laughs> All right. Any any last moment thoughts or questions? responsibility to uh, to get rid of formal language or to that instead it's just for the, the people that are in power that are CJ I think you do a better job of explaining it again than what I did I can't hear yeah I, you're got to speak up there louder please okay. um, my argument is, is simply that it's more important to disempower our bias towards formal language than it is to um, actually deconstruct our bias um, and, and try to eliminate it. Like the bias is not the problem here, it's the empowerment of it that's the problem. Um, I, would say that, I would also say that it's, it's everyone's responsibility to do their best to attempt conversation. And I think that's pretty much what she's trying to say. It's, we all are encouraged to at least have a conversation Regardless, meet somewhere in the middle to understand each other. I was going to say, like, and with the perspective I take, which is so different with my um, with my, my career, my passions, and what I love, a lot of schools who are failing, I question whether it's a test of intelligence or of language. 
And then if if you were to how do you how do you change the perspective of that? How do you empower the people who have this failing grade card? Um, who are intelligent beings, but the rest of the world doesn't understand that if they're not in it. Is that, so that's the perspective I'm, I'm coming from, but I totally get it. I don't think she was correcting you. She was correcting the way I said something. Oh, okay. So she wasn't correcting me. <laughs> it's okay that she was correcting me. I think what Diana is saying is interesting, though, because I think that's part of the challenge, because the leadership has established a standard uh -huh. that reflects their existing bias and towards then, formal language. And then the question becomes, do you... I'll tell you what. Okay. I'm going to stop <laughs> because it is 11.45 and uh, I try to have this done by 11.30 before we go into prayer request. No, it's fine. But listen, please, I would love if when I, we post on our, we'll post on our Facebook page about our topic today, please take your questions there and actually have a conversation there, too. Um, I think that would be awesome. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just encourage that to happen. I don't want to, like, end the conversation. Uh, we just need to put it on pause for right now. So, um, all right, I'm going to pause the, I'm going to stop the video.